0: I'm AJ Bianco, host of Reflect Ed, a part of the Education Podcast Network. Just like the show you're listening to now, shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, Steve here, and my podcast, Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, is hosted on Podbean. If you use my affiliate link when you sign up for podcast hosting, you will get one month free. I've been on Podbean for the whole existence of my podcast since November of 2013. In that time frame, I've had nonstop service. I've had easy access to assistance when I needed help. I've been able to upload unlimited pictures and podcast episodes. The dashboard is easy to use. My Podbean community has grown tremendously. Looking at starting a podcast? Well, use my affiliate link to get one month free of hosting. Go to my website at stephenmoletto.com sponsors and click on the Podbean hosting link to see what plans are offered, and choose the one that you like the best. You'll be glad you did. Hey, welcome back. Steve here, and today I'm talking with Renee Hobbs. She is an internationally recognized authority on digital and media literacy education. Today, we're focused on her book, Mind Over Media, Propaganda Education in a Digital Age. So much to learn. Thanks for listening. and Oh, by the way, it'd be so cool if you go to my website, stephenmoletto.com slash reviews, and left a review for the podcast. Could you do that, please? Thanks so much. Enjoy the show. Hey, do you need help in becoming more effective at teaching virtual classes? Well, NVTA, the National Virtual Teaching Association, has a semester program that is college accredited and designed to help you become more successful as a virtual teacher. A few of the topics that will be focused on are establishing relationships in the virtual environment, virtual instruction best practices, differentiation in the virtual classroom, and managing virtual resources, among others. NVTA is an affiliate partner with Teaching Learning Leading K-12, and there's so much there to help you be successful in the virtual classroom. Uh, so take a look. Go to my website, stevamoletto.com, sponsors, find the NVTA logo, and click on it to take you to their website. Happy learning. Boone Titanium Rings, found on the web at boonrings.com, is an affiliate partner of Teaching Learning Leading K-12. And I'm also a customer. I have this really cool ring that's ca- got these carved pistons and, and stars in it. I love it. They make rings of titanium that are carved, laser-cut, and engraved, as well as they have inlays of many types of materials, like meteorite, acrylic, wood, carbon fiber, and so many other types. They also have special collections that are incredible designs. One of the top sellers are the gamer rings, the stealth series, and the black zirconium. As a note, they also make earrings, pendants, cufflinks, and for you musicians, they make cool trumpet mouthpieces. Love it. Go to boonrings.com and at checkout, use my code capital T, capital L, capital L, capital K, number 12, and you'll get 10% off your purchase. So go check them out. I love my ring, and I know that you will love yours. You are listening to
1: Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast for educators, helping you help kids achieve their dreams. Now here's Steve
0: with this week's show. Renee Hobbs is an internationally recognized authority on digital and media literacy education. She founded the Harrington School of Communication and Media at the University of Rhode Island and is director of its Media Education Lab. Renee co-founded, namely, National Association for Media Literacy Education and is creator of the first national teacher education program in media literacy at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. She won the Media Literacy Education Meritorious Service Award from Namely in 2015, is the author of 10 books and over 150 scholarly articles on digital and media literacy. Her book, Mind Over Media, Propaganda Education in a Digital Age, won the 2021 Prose Awards of Excellence from the American Association of Publishers in Social Sciences and Education Practice and Theory. Today, we'll take a look at some quick reference guides, the Media Education Lab, and Renee's book, Mind Over Media, Propaganda Education for a Digital Age. Renee, thanks for joining me today and say hi to everyone.
1: Hi, everybody. Thanks for listening.
0: Well, glad to have you here today. And uh, Renee, in the preface to your book, Mind Over Media, Propaganda Education for a Digital Age, you introduce the reader to the term propaganda education, and this is noted. When done well, propaganda education can be controversial and it must be designed and implemented with care so that it does not turn into indoctrination. Could you talk about what propaganda education is and why we need it as in our society?
1: Yeah, so, you know, we are, um, we are living in a propaganda society. And, um, in fact, uh, that was a claim made in the 20th century as well, right? With the rise of radio and uh, n- newspapers and television and uh, Hollywood entertainment and S- Madison Avenue, and now... In the 21st century, uh, it's big tech and Silicon Valley. So the persuasive genres are a huge and important part of our entertainment, our information, and um, of course, it's how we it influences how we you know engage in the basic practices of everyday life and deciding what to what to buy, what to eat, what to wear. But um, the persuasive genres have um, gotten short shrift in education. And so propaganda education is uh, an effort to ensure that learners are prepared to navigate in a propaganda society, uh, that they have the uh, critical analysis skills and the knowledge and understanding of how propaganda uh, works to um influence your attitudes and behavior uh, propaganda education is a form of media literacy right with emphasis on um the genres and types of media that um, persuade people and and how and how can it slide into indoctrination ha! <laughs> It's
0: so easy, right? <laughs> Most definitely, and we're, and and I'm hoping to get into a little detail in that in a little bit. But you know, and 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 one of the things it's fascinating, just like what you just brought up. I mean, there for the longest time. I mean, you know, the world we've been in um, ever since. Uh, well, <laughs> I guess ever since humans been trying to convince humans of one side or another of something. We you know we try and figure out how to make them believe us <laughs> or you know trick them into believing us or whatever other words you want to use and and it's funny because yeah we're used to you know you get into this in your book we're used to usually in the in a high school history class you're going to focus on World War Two World War One and things like this well you don't have to do that now <laughs> we've got a lot of evidence today and but it, you know which is quite funny and you know and one of the things that uh, is just fascinating about this because I I got to tell you this when I was reading your book. I, I want to throw this in there and maybe we can come back to it another time. But like I was a high school principal and uh, we needed extra income to help us uh, with awards nights and student recognition and to do different stuff like that. And so there were these two big name companies that you wheel and deal with um, one called Coke and one called Pepsi, neither of which sponsored this podcast. So <laughs> that is not product <laughs> placement, <laughs> but you know, and, and so you'd wheel and deal with them to get some money out of them. And, uh, and they'd help you by putting things like uh, their their drink machines or, uh, signs on the side of your building or, you know, things like that. In one case, I had an ice cream vendor who, uh, we did business with and we had these really cool machines that were almost like, it was just as fun putting money in it just to watch how it picked up the ice cream and gave it to you. It was like a, a, an arcade machine (laughs) almost, but the, uh, you know, and and it's just funny because, uh, we, at that time there was some company that, uh, did business with a school system, not some company They they were out in California in this Evidently, this high school was right on the path of a runway, and they had painted doc. They 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 got a big uh, deal to paint Dr Pepper on the roof of the school. <laughs> and uh,
1: yeah, so advertising has advertising in the classroom has long been uh, uh, part of how uh, underfunded schools uh, manage to make ends meet, and and advertising in the classroom has sometimes been controversial, and other times not at all controversial right? Um, And so it is really important for students to start learning about advertising very early in the elementary grades. And that is the very first way that media literacy often gets introduced to children by helping them understand about brands and logos and cartoon characters. and, um, And sometimes kids spontaneously learn media literacy because they recognize the gap between the the story of the product that's presented on the television commercial, right? Which now is a pre-roll on YouTube, by the way.
0: <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's funny. Yes. Yeah. it's yeah, it, And that's, what's that's, what's funny about this. Cause you know, like when I was a kid, what everybody's worried about is that uh, I'm going to be imitating, you know, I don't know the wily e. coyote and, and fall off a cliff or, you know, cause I'm, I'm too busy watching those cartoons or Three Stooges and stuff like this and poking each other in the eyes. And uh, and then along with those things came the commercials for the cereals and the toys and and all that good stuff. And, uh, you know, and today it just seems like at least then I had I turned off the TV and I really didn't get bombarded with it because I'm carrying around a little device, you know, multiple devices with me.
1: Well, and, and uh, how about that research that shows that 70% of American students ages 9 to 17 want to be YouTube influencers when they grow up, right? Nice. So they're being influenced by PewDiePie and all the rest uh, who uh, suggest that, you know, that you can make money just by uh, um, showing off your bling, right? Uh, so So understanding the new forms of, Persuasion and propaganda that are around us, like clickbait, like sponsored content, like influencers. Um, and of course, we're seeing the, all the rage right now with TikTok. Uh, it turns out that uh, media changes so fast that the most interesting and part of the reason why I wrote this book was that um, teachers have to really, t- if teachers are going to teach media literacy, they have to be really responsive to like what's going on in the society right now. And while the mm, fake news and disinformation crisis rages and continues to rage, right? With COVID misinformation and all the yes. rest, uh, it isn't the only, it's only a part of what it means to be media literate, right? And we don't, we, we don't want to confuse people by com- communicating this idea that the only thing you have to worry about is disinformation. Um, because the persuasive genres probably capture more of your heart than um, information. You know, that's really, educators have known that for a long time. If you want something to stick, you activate strong emotions, right? You connect ideas to feelings. And that's what propaganda masters of propaganda have um, discovered and, and exploit.
0: You know, it's, it's just wild because like I, (laughs) like I was saying same before you. Know, I, th- I think it's funny that you know it. it I mean, because they really were good at influencing kids. I mean, you know, who, you know when you when you associate uh, your cereal with a cartoon or something like this, you know, and then that's the cereal that you want, and uh, and then of course it might come with a prize inside. So uh, you got to have that one specifically because of that prize inside. <laughs> and,
1: <laughs> and and you know, what's so fascinating is I mean, think about like the the vast gap there uh, just in the generation between. Uh, us and our and our current high school students, because a uh, current high school student knows very well how that shoe, those shoes that they look at on Zappos, follow them around to other websites and other platforms. And if they dare look at that really cool Supreme skateboard gear, that that skateboard gear is going to be present. Every moment of their day, every time they use their mobile phone, that skateboard gear will be there. And um, they are powerless to resist. Right. Because that those messages have been so carefully targeted to them. So this idea of personalized persuasion. Right. Uh, You you grew up with where the mass media sent a mass message to all the children your age right? Boys and girls alike. Well, now um, our high school students see persuasion that we will never see. We adults and parents and grandparents, we will never see because it's so highly personalized. Geographic specific persuasion. Did you know that? That's the thing, Stephen. A geographic specific persuasion where um, marketers will deliver a message to your cell phone after you're leaving church on sunday morning just in the geographic radius of the church within a 200 feet range of the church because they know that after church you're going to go out to breakfast and so the ihop ads will appear now that kind of persuasion is something that everybody needs some cognitive defenses to try to resist
0: you got that right i mean because that's it's just nuts i mean and, and when you think about it like that yeah because you're right i mean me as a kid, I mean, all I gotta do is turn off the channel and it's not targeted towards me. I mean, it's I mean it's targeted towards me, but not me, not like Steve. Hey Steve, hello. And you know, one of the things that's scary now is they're experimenting with, you know, these stores, the idea that you walk in and it recognizes you through your phone or your tablet or whatever, it says, hello, hey everybody, Steve is here. And Steve, last time when you were here, you bought the following. And we'd love to show you some stuff that goes really well with that. You know, oh my gosh, man. This is it is almost like those old game shows when they said this prize was. Picked out just for you, and now it is.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, so learning about uh, algorithms and data and how your data is used to persuade you is a big part of why I wrote the book. And uh, it turns out that students have some intuitive understanding of these things because they're living it. Right. But it can be really validating to have a classroom experience and talk about it. And because Google and Facebook and the platform companies are using their propaganda to make us love them. (laughs) Sometimes it's hard to have genuine, genuine dialogue about these companies because we feel so much loyalty. Oh, we love Google. In fact, Google's done a really great job with educators, haven't they? They oh, yeah. t- they brought us free services, Google Classroom and Google Sites and Google Sheets and Docs and Forms. And <gasps> Don't you just love them? So having a critical discourse about um, platform companies and their... Um, their their the knowledge they have about your behavior and their ability to deploy that knowledge to persuade. Um, sometimes that takes a little decentering because we do feel uh, very loyal to platform companies, and it's at, at a time right now when uh, public uh, discourse about antitrust and have these companies gotten too big? Have these companies gotten too powerful? Um, it turns out even high school students can weigh in on some of these important questions about how do we regulate big tech? So, uh, freedom of expression is protected, but, um, uh, the enormous uh, political power of these platforms is, uh, is, is has some checks and balances.
0: It really, it really is crazy. I mean, cause it, it, what you're talking about is, is and especially having worked with kids for a long time. I mean, high school age kids, that's, that was primarily where I, uh, was in the classroom as well as an administrator. And you know, one of the things that, oh yeah, they're very, they, they start understanding and catching on when things are, you know, it's a little uh, um, too one-sided. And it's, it's just fascinating now because, I mean, you, I think many of them are starting to realize, especially if they create their own YouTube channel or they create their own, their, their own podcast or something that suddenly might get censored.
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> hey, what so, happened to
0: my episode? It was there before. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, and of course when I wrote the book about copyright, uh, that was a it was always really helpful. To have kids who had a takedown experience then they had some understanding how did how did uh, how did the law work what why was it there why did platform companies get this great exemption um, so it provided a lot of opportunity you know though in my book uh steven i write about teachers who are bold enough and courageous enough to help to encourage students to create propaganda and some people are shocked when they hear that what what Students, you're, you're, you're asking students to create propaganda, but it turns out that um, it's actually one of the most common media literacy activities in the United States, and it has been for about 20 years. Uh, usually it happens in middle school, but sometimes in high school and sometimes even younger. Kids are asked to work with a group, a small group, to create a public service announcement. Nice, uh, nice. <laughs> what is a public service announcement, you might ask? Well, it's positive propaganda. I like that. <laughs> now, sometimes when teachers teach kids to make a public service announcement, it's wah, 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 boring, boring, boring. It's a delivery of information, it's a recital of the facts from Wikipedia or something like that, right? It's sad and pathetic and doesn't persuade anyone. Because the teacher forgot to teach about how persuasion works, right? By activating strong emotions, simplifying information, appealing to people's deepest hopes, fears, and dreams, and of course, attacking opponents. So, but when students learn to create positive propaganda... For wearing a mask, for getting vaccinated, for eating a nutritious diet, for exercising, right? They learned that propaganda is in the eye of the beholder, right? And that uh, it can be used in a very powerful way. In fact, historically, we understand that propaganda is fundamental to creating societies, to achieving consensus, to bringing People with all their diversity together around a set of common interests. So, propaganda is a really important part of democracy. It's not to be feared, it's to be appreciated and understood.
0: That is so just extremely powerful what you're talking about right there, because that is something that it, it helps people think about things in a different way or think about it in a way in which is helpful. And, you know, it's funny because it, let's flash back to me as a kid. Well, we were bombarded with the propaganda. Do you remember the Native American with the tear running down his cheek as he looked at all the trash everywhere? Do you remember the uh, the store the the pictures of the bald eagle flying and then they're no more type thing? Well, now they're go out to Alaska. They're out there now. <laughs> but the uh, you know so something worked right in that, and you know everything from Hootie the Owl to uh, um, you know Smokey the Bear and uh, talking about uh, protecting our wilderness and so forth. You know that's all of that very. Positive propaganda, and then there were the, the the little sneaky ones that came on during in between the cartoons that talked about uh, brushing your teeth, and uh, and I wish I could remember the songs that went with them. I can remember the conjunction junction and all those stuff like that, but I, for some reason I can't remember the eating healthy diet and all that stuff and. Anyway, but well, uh,
1: well well, you know there's another kind of propaganda that educators often don't recognize as propaganda, Stephen. I wonder what you think about this. When I was growing up and still today in high schools and elementary schools and middle schools all across America, children stand up and they put their hand over their heart and they recite, "I pledge allegiance to the flag." Now, the Pledge of Allegiance is a form of propaganda too, right? And it comes closest to what we might call indoctrination, because nationalism and the feeling of national pride and of pride of of uh, pride in one's country is cultivated through communication. Right, communication behaviors are what build that sense of national identity, and in in my opinion the pledge of allegiance is a positive form of beneficial propaganda creating a, a a ritual of daily life that reminds us that we're that we're not individuals we're members of a a tribe right um
0: i appreciate you say that too cuz that's exactly what uh, you know it's To me, why it's created, we have to come around some identity because we have all these differences. We have plenty of differences, but we need to have that one identity to come together as a country.
1: Exactly. But nationalism can be, um, as as there's a a beautiful scholar that says something like nationalism can be good, it can be bad, and it can be ugly. And I think it's really important to start helping students make discriminations between mm, patriotism that's good patriotism that's bad and patriotism that's dangerous, right? Um, and so in some ways in civic education, this becomes a component of citizenship to recognize, right um, how the stories we tell each other about our country are have ideological purposes. they have they have they have uh, strategic goals. And students have, Um, students can students make strategic can make strategic decisions about which one which of those stories um, make sense to them and families and parents do that all the time and right now with the rise of political polarization where we have we have wildly divergent differences in uh, communities across the United States about things like uh, getting vaccinated or wearing masks, right? Or, um, or lots of other lots of other issues. Uh, even this current infrastructure bill that's being debated. In some ways, students benefit from getting an opportunity to share understandings of why um, why in a way why we do democracy through conflict and controversy, right? Because um, the Enlightenment thinkers told us 300 years ago that uh, the only way we got to understand the truth, lowercase truth, was through the interplay of ideas that were each of them limited and selective and incomplete and partial. Um, So the idea of exploring propaganda is really rooted to the Enlightenment project of um, we are we are all seeking truth through understanding how partial and selective and incomplete our knowledge really is. And that's why it's, I think right now we see a lot of attention to people, people saying we need to be aware of our own biases, right? And teachers need to be aware of their own biases and students need to be aware of their own biases, and in some way. Um, that is a part of the project of mind over media. Um, It's not just analyzing the media. We also need to analyze and understand ourselves and where our worldview comes from and what influenced us to have the attitudes and beliefs that we have.
0: So i got to use that to step into something else here, because one of the things you get into, there's a little section in one of your chapters that gets into, wouldn't it just be easier just to ignore it? Just move on, not talk about this at all, because and risk angering lots of people. Because you really can in one one class in one little school, someplace, all of a sudden, boom. <laughs> so, wouldn't it be easier just to ignore it?
1: <laughs> well, you know, I do. I have for the last twenty or thirty years maintained a database, a file. Uh, I was at one point. I wondered, like, can you get fired for teaching media literacy? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> That's nice. That's, yeah. I can see why you'd be researching that. Yes. It's-
1: uh, you know, it's important. I mean, I don't want to, I mean, absolutely. We should know about these things when they happen. And of course it doesn't take much scratching through local newspapers to see that uh, controversy can happen by the choice of content that teachers um, bring in. So in the book, I tell the story of the teacher who was teaching about the labor movement history teacher teaching about the labor movement. And she brought in a short five or six minute piece on the history of the labor movement. It was produced by Al Jazeera. Right. And it was actually kind of entertaining and, you know, hip, right. Maybe a little bit ironic. And um, well, didn't she get a parent complaint? Right. And didn't the principal say, well, it was perfectly appropriate text because it was about the the labor movement. But uh, it turned into quite a big brouhaha in their town of Wisconsin, where even the local newspaper spoke out against this teacher. Ah, it was crazy. So in some ways, many teachers choose to step away from the controversies associated with um, teaching about what's happening in our society because of these risks. But I'm really keen on um like what are the benefits of taking that risk? So yes, there's a risk and every teacher has to decide for herself or himself whether it's worth taking, but the benefits of taking that risk are so in my opinion seem to so outweigh uh, the harms. Um and some of that is about helping students be aware of like what school is for anyway. Cause you know, we really do have a crisis of relevance, Stephen. We've got fourth graders who've decided at the age of nine, that school is really useless to them and they, they're they going to go through the motions, right? You know, and they'll, they'll do the work, they'll jump through the hoops, but they've already decided nothing that happens in school is really meaningful because so many teachers are not going to touch what's The meaningful topics are because they're afraid. So when we choose to bring the meaningful topics, the controversies of everyday life into the classroom. School suddenly seems a lot more relevant to kids, and then they're fully present. They pay attention. They talk. They have ideas. When we ask them to write, they they write. They write right. Uh, and I feel like that media literacy. One of the reasons why media literacy is rising in um, all fifty states and in state standards and has really become more visible now is because educators themselves have discovered that media literacy pedagogies increase increase student engagement. And no matter how good a teacher you are, if the kids are not engaged, you know, you 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 can't teach them. So uh it's worth taking the risk.
0: Gotcha. And uh, you know, and I gotta say this along with what you just talked about, because one of the things that uh goes with that by the way is asking you know media understanding media literacy I would think that one of the avenues that you have to go down uh, is that teaching people how to ask questions about what they're hearing or seeing or viewing to say is this real and you know what, I mean it's, it's like some of the stuff you're going okay first of all I usually if I'm listening to something on a podcast or a radio and and anymore my world is I've kind of disassociated myself with anything other than podcasts because I can choose the podcast. <laughs> but even then, I still find myself going, hello, did you ask yourself who this was? Who did they talk to when they found this information? How many people did they really talk to? And what did the others have to say that weren't included in it? And unfortunately, <laughs> myself doesn't answer. So, <laughs> you know. <laughs>
1: But you know, it's a great point, and it's why, and that's inquiry learning, right? And so when we try to take John Dewey's ideas and turn them into real classroom practice, we realize that the best thing we can do is create the intellectual curiosity. The kids want to ask their own questions and then have the skills and strategies to go find out the answers right? And to synthesize information, to put together their own understanding. You know, what's beautiful about that is the teacher doesn't have to be an expert. The teacher doesn't have to know everything about everything, because it's not really about delivering. The teacher knows this and the kid doesn't know it. It's actually the teacher is creating a conditions to activate the kid's own curiosity, to ask those questions, and then helping the kid find the way forward with uh, some new knowledge. And uh, teachers are really good at that, right? And I feel like that's partly why I wrote the book to kind of give teachers a little bit of an anchor. You know, it's good if you know about propaganda. And here's, you know, uh, here's a book that makes you feel a little bit more confident. <laughs> you have, that you know something about propaganda, but it's that inquiry process of cultivating in kids the curiosity to ask those questions. That's what makes it pop. And and propaganda enters into every subject matter. And I'm Stephen with your great reach. You're the people who listen to your podcast, science teachers. Ha, man! Think of all of the propaganda that is embedded in the way we understand science. We've got, well, the the American Petroleum Institute, right? Which has recently been using Facebook to uh, remind voters of who they should vote for and not vote for, right? Regarding energy policy. Oh, and then there's climate change, right? And then, I mean, I could just go on and on and on in science, right? Uh, And then there's history and social studies and their propaganda has to do with everything even monuments and memorials right the artifacts that represent our understanding of history we have seen in the last few years how monuments and memorials can function as propaganda even if they might not have been intended to be propaganda they they uh, they function as propaganda and so we have to think about how we understand history Has issues of propaganda, and then of course there's literature. But you know what, English teachers, Stephen, they're very interesting. I'm going to call them to task right now because I have your, I have your, I have your. I hope I have your blessing.
0: Just, just need to know you're killing me because I I got. If I wasn't controversial before, you just hit on everything. All right, so. (laughs)
1: All right. Well, here's one more that's a really interesting one. English teachers, right? They're they're about teaching about the power of language, right? And, and George Orwell, right? Uh, Aldous Huxley. In the early 20th century, we we understood that through language, you can shape people's perception of the world. Right. And the study of language is absolutely central to the study of propaganda, because just by your choice of verb, adjective or noun, you can reshape people's understanding completely. But what happened when the Common Core came in? And when was that the turn of the 20th century? What happened? Well, English teachers said, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. We'll just focus on argumentation. And argumentation, well, that's how you um, build an argument using evidence, ra- reasoning, and chains of argument, right? A warrant and a claim and evidence, reasoning, oh, very, this is important. And out the. what went out the window is the English teachers stopped teaching about the persuasive genres, They stopped teaching about propaganda. They stopped teaching about the power of language to shape reality because argumentation became the fashion, but you know what? People are persuaded by feelings, not facts. And so in all that focus on argumentation, they, they left out the way we real humans influencing are influencing each other. And uh, so we have to restore some balance in the English pedagogy right now. Uh, We have to help English teachers be less afraid of teaching about persuasion and propaganda.
0: Just as a side note, I got to tell this story because as a former principal, it's it's almost always the English teachers who almost always get you in trouble. You know, it's like, so for those English teachers that are listening to this right now, (laughs) I have to share this story because, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, one of my all-time favorite ones was that... uh, from time to time, the English teacher—I—I I had some great English teachers that worked with me. All right, we were colleagues, and uh, but I also had some who they were really pushing the envelope. And uh, and what I did was I asked them, make sure that you have alternative readings, all right, so that if somebody does not appreciate whatever it is you're trying to challenge the thinking in that way, there needs to be an alternative reading. And uh, I had that conversation, and and I understood the parent and what she was talking about and where she had earmarked the pages and all this. And, and I said, not a problem. I said, well, we'll bring in. Teacher came and uh, he met with her and and uh, he came to me and said, she's extremely happy. Everything's good and all this sort of stuff. And I said, great. I said, I'm going to talk with her. see, And sure enough, she was very happy. And she told me what her daughter was now reading and that it was very, it was awesome that she was reading such a classic. And I went back to him because I saw what that classic was that he gave her. And that classic was Fahrenheit 451. And he got this funny smile on his face, (laughs) and I said, dude, all right, I said, next time you decide to talk about book censorship with a book that nobody knows, (laughs) doesn't understand what you've just given the kid, you know, let's not go there, all right? (laughs) Choose something else. And I'll never forget that English teacher.
1: That's a great story. That Thanks. is a great story, and uh, kudos to you for like uh, uh, supporting that teacher throughout. Right?
0: He, he was amazing, <laughs> and I got to tell you though, I just, when I saw the book, I'm like, "You got to be kidding me!" I'm going to. You talk about you losing your. You know, you start going. Well, that was nice. It was nice being a principal for a while. We're good. We're. <laughs> it's just, because I do have to tell you that it is—it is a shame that the English departments lose their gumption. Because typically in the past, that is where your controversies came from. Because it's like I had one who she'd come to me and she'd go, "I got to tell you, we kind of touched on some subjects today that uh, you might have some trouble coming."
1: She <laughs> <laughs> warned you. I yes. I warned you.
0: Oh yeah, she always gave me a heads up after the fact. All right. Yeah. So
1: (laughs) well, here's the thing. Uh, Teachers are the best teachers are responsive to the needs of their learners. And in conversations like that, you figure out what teenagers need to talk about, what they want to talk about, what they want to learn, what their what their struggles are, Uh, because, you know, we're not teaching subjects. We're teaching human beings. Right. And that's partly why I love the study of propaganda because it actually addresses us in all our complexity you know we haven't even talked about propaganda in entertainment but propaganda isn't just in the news or in politics or in climate science stuff it's actually all around us in entertainment but when when propaganda is in entertainment and it aligns with what I already think and feel and believe. I don't recognize it as propaganda. I only notice propaganda in entertainment when I see those war movies that make uh, the CIA guys look like heroes and make invading Afghanistan and occupying it for 20 years look like a a really great effort. And uh, then for me, then that looks like propaganda. Right, but when propaganda upholds the myth of the of the teacher who rescues those poor kids in the ghetto, I don't I don't see that as propaganda. That's just a good story.
0: <laughs> that's funny. That's funny because that, yeah, that's you see that a lot in in Hollywood coming out of the, the different movies that uh, which I think is funny when the when a Hollywood actor or actress uh, however they refer to themselves. Uh, um, chooses something to be on the side and they're in these different, and they don't see what they're doing sending out some sort of propaganda. It's right. like, cause, right. cause it's whatever they believe is in part of that. It, oh, you're so right. It's,
1: and it's a big, and it's a big thing for teenagers because I mean, think about it. There's a fair amount of entertainment that they're using that has potentially harmful consequences, like video games that include stereotypes of people from different religions or different parts of the world, like social media uh, content that depicts extremely thin people as like um, healthy when they're really not. Um, uh, And we're, we're all seeing now the, the um, you know, the self-esteem Facebook uh, uh, studies about, about how kids entertainment use of media can be, harmful. But you can't um stand on a soapbox and point at kids and say the stuff you like is <laughs> bad for you. That does not work. What you can do is say, let's watch and discuss. Let's ask critical questions, right? About uh entertainment comedies that make it look funny that the US is going to assassinate another political leader. Like What's funny about that? Why is that funny? Why is why do we see that as entertainment, right? And so it turns out that um, students have the um, have the take delight take delight in being able to recognize how um, everybody's trying to influence them in one way or another: their parents, their teachers, and the media.
0: know it's funny because one of the things you make me think about is that uh, there was a time when all the tv shows showed a central family and uh, the family gets along and then there's challenging things that happen and then suddenly we end up with something where it's very much fun to make fun of dad make fun of parents maybe no parents make fun of the family structure completely and uh, rip it apart and uh, you see all that all that type of you know the different propaganda from trying to um, yep. The propaganda that was being created to try and stop people from getting divorces, and so we centered around families that need to work together. To yep. suddenly there is no family structure, and and instead it's funny to laugh at uh, you know the negativity that's directed towards the family.
1: Yeah, and and, and consumer culture echoes some of those terrible values. Like uh, eat, uh, get your own bag says Doritos. Because the idea that you would actually share a bag of Doritos is like, no, no, no. You know, don't get your own bag because we're not sharing. And it's like, wow. Okay. So they're not just selling Doritos. They're selling a, they're selling a value. Right and uh, learning to recognize the subtext of a message, and that's why the, we go. We return back to English teachers. Turns out that it takes practice to learn to recognize what's not being said directly, but what is being implied through the skillful use of language, image, and sound. I feel like um, in some ways, kids who get who get to encounter that in um, in middle school, in late elementary or middle school. Uh, They come into high school with um, a a spirit that is um, it's it's it can be really well used in high school and it can actually help makes help students to become more socially responsible communicators themselves. Right. Because once you've thought about thought deeply about the potential harms of communication. And then you can also realize that, you know, you, you don't want that guilt. You don't want, to, you don't want to be part of that. And then you can learn to be a more responsible communicator. And I feel like that's probably why I'm so optimistic about media literacy, because I do feel like um, it has potentially such um, beneficial uh, impacts for our whole society. You know, yes, it's good for students. And yes, it's good for education. And yes, it will help build critical thinking skills that will translate onto test scores and such. But it goes so much further because it um, allows us to restore our sense of being uh, respectful members of um, a society where we owe each other the obligation um, to listen respectfully, to try to understand. And, you know, at the end of the book, I say um, the the way forward with living in a world full of propaganda is to have intellectual humility, be aware that you don't know everything. And that you don't understand everything, and other people's understandings may be just as valid as your own, right? Um, and that you have to decide who's who to trust and respect. You—it's ha- that it, it decision is not foreordained; it's your decision. You have to decide who to respect, and you have to decide who to trust. And what we don't want is a society where people feel like they can't trust anything or anybody. That's what I'm really scared of. And so, Stephen, that's probably where I'm, why I'm so passionate about this topic, because um, I, I don't want people to be cynical. I want people to feel confident that they can make informed decisions about who to, whose ideas to respect and trust and to do that with and to have some skills. You know, before they get to college, for God's sakes.
0: Oh, I hope they're making some decisions before they get to college, because by the time they get there, if they've all if if they're not able to make some critical thoughts about what they're introduced to. I got a lot of trouble coming. <laughs> so crazy stuff. You know, this is this is this is awesome talking with you, Renee. I got to I got I to gotta make sure I ask you this. You know, one of the things that's kind of cool in your book is that uh, you have these activities throughout it that uh, reinforce what you've been talking about. Could you just share a little bit about those?
1: Yeah, yeah. So uh, so I, I in the course of doing the research for this project, I I talked to about I don't know, 300 educators. And I harvested all kinds of cool ideas uh, from them, from uh, the uh, the Emily's in uh, Austin, Texas, who were teaching social studies to high school students in ways that were just amazing. Having students compare and contrast the, you know, the words that come when you're watching the news, the words that come below the picture. These teachers were basically deconstructing and analyzing the actual nouns and verbs going on and helping students understand point of view. And they weren't afraid of bringing disinformation into the classroom. They would bring in a piece of, you know, total garbage, right? And they would help students realize that even a deeply flawed, inaccurate, false, or misleading, or biased report can have some value to you on your inquiry journey. There is some value to be uh, had in understanding that very different um, and sometimes deeply flawed uh, argument or point of view. They were fearless. Uh, And how how about the elementary school library media specialist? who was using the Mo Willems books, right? Um, uh, pigeon wants a puppy. So in the book, I try to sprinkle, <laughs> sprinkle uh, like little vignettes, case studies of from the stories that I gathered because uh, there were just so many of them and I wanted to showcase the best of them. Turns out pigeon wants a puppy is a Children's picture book about the persuasive strategies that Pigeon will use in his effort to get a puppy. Turns out even the best of us will sometimes convey inaccurate information. Well, kids Over, don't do overstate a do case that. using hyperbole. We might even lie.
0: <laughs> no. What a
1: great opportunity to talk with very young children about what people do in their efforts to persuade others. (sighs) Such a cool, such a cool, uh, I feel blessed to have had so many teachers uh, contribute their stories. In fact, yeah. So, but in general the um ex- the activities come from not just uh, uh American North American educators but I w- was so very fortunate in thanks to the European Commission I was able to work for 3 years with educators from France, Finland, Poland, Romania, Croatia and the Neb- and Belgium. And these educators also are represent their their uh, pedagogies are represented, uh, in this book as well. So, um, again, you know, teachers are so creative, Stephen, you know, that cause your podcast really showcases them. Teachers are so creative and they, uh, figure out strategies that work for their learners. And, um, I, I feel like, you know, anything we can do to empower them to keep doing that. That's a good thing.
0: That's cool. That's cool. And then I got to tell you your book's very powerful. And I I got to I got to ask you this. If if you had a chance to talk with an audience full of educators and and you're talking about your book, what's something you just want them to walk away with when when they leave? This is the thing that they got to walk away understanding.
1: Propaganda, the word propaganda has been used as a sneer word that stops people from actually thinking. <laughs> That's a problem in a world full of propaganda in advertising in entertainment and in information so instead of treating propaganda as this historical thing that happened in 20th century germany right we have to embrace the idea that propaganda is all around us it's it can be beneficial it can be harmful in fact activists all throughout history have used the power of propaganda to try to make societies better. So we have to stop thinking about propaganda, stop using propaganda as a smear word. And we have to start taking it seriously as a really important cultural phenomenon that needs to have a bigger place in what we do in public education.
0: Awesome. You know, one of the things I hate, and I hate to leave, but I need to touch on something else here real quick. But uh, you know, your book "Mind Over Media." I mean, it's just it is so powerful. I mean, it's just it, the uh, the idea of uh, propaganda is something that we do that's for good things as well as <laughs> bad up um, bad things. I'm sorry, you know, great vocabulary there, Steve. But you know, it's uh, it, it has its 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 positive part of the world. And it's there. I mean, we can see it all around us. And, uh, you know, even just as simple as how to brush your teeth and why you want to, you know. (laughs) Um, So with that being said, let me me shift gears here just for a minute. You've got a couple other things. You've got some other resources that you put out there for a digital learning world um, called Quick Reference Guides. Uh, And you got them for elementary, middle and high school. And I was wondering if you might want to talk about a little bit about why Um, teachers might want to take a look at your digital reference guides.
1: Oh, thanks so much for asking about that. You know, during the coronavirus uh, pandemic, uh, media literacy educators and, and all teachers really had to figure out how to move online. And of course, we went through that phase of remote emergency instruction and we continued to discover and learn. Well, we did that. In, at the Media Education Lab, too, and we were so very fortunate to bring our learning community to harvest ideas from our learning community because, you know, we've been offering the Summer Institute in Digital Literacy. That's our premier professional uh, development program. It's now in its 10th year. The Summer Institute in Digital Literacy now has over a 1,000 educators who've had this intense week-long learning experience. And we brought that program fully online during the pandemic. And that's when we realized, oh, we actually know how digital learning can activate these um, profound critical thinking skills, inspire kids to create media, to represent their knowledge, and be supported in ways that create a climate of respect and trust where kids can learn. So, um, yeah, so with my colleague, uh, Julie Cryro and Yanti Friesem, we said, let's see if we can explain this pedagogy, that we discovered during the pandemic. Let's see if we can explain it in just six pages. (laughs) Can you believe it? And we did. (laughs) So with help from our publisher, uh, W.W. Norton, uh, we were able to like create these, really we were thinking the way they're intended to be used is in um, in a staff development program where you read and talk about the ideas that are in these six pages. Because of the pandemic, every teacher who reads these um, short guides can connect to something they experienced uh, during the pandemic. And what we're trying to do is make sure that the best practices of online learning that happened during the pandemic don't go away just because we're now going face to face we want to bring forward those best practices of digital learning into the the new era ahead uh and that's what we that's why we created the quick resource guides for uh a digital learning with the media education lab
0: awesome love it and and they're they and you guys did a great job of compressing it down into into those pages so i gotta tell you that's a uh, what a challenge because i i barely can get uh Reduce my number of questions I want to ask a guest and uh, you you guys mentioned all this great information in that that short guide. And, and I got to ask you, I mean, so with that, I want to use that as a segue. What do you think is one of the major, I mean, what do you think um, as a result of, you know, how is teaching changing in (laughs) post-pandemia? Is that a word? Yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, I think we're all looking really hard at what this academic year will bring. Right. Because, you know, last year was so uh, we were still kind of feeling our way forward. But this year uh, we're seeing pretty good evidence from our community that they are incorporating some of those best practices of digital learning into the back into the classroom environment. And certainly I'm doing that myself as a as an educator. So I think we'll know better in a year what, where we're at on that. But um, one thing is for certain is that every part of how we live today is kind of happening through these screens. (laughs) And um, the more we're able to support and scaffold people's competence and capacity to engage in Robust learning using screens, um, I think the better off we're go- the better off we're going to be, you know, as a society. So there's no going back from from it. Now we've just discovered like how glorious it is that we can talk to each other through this podcast.
0: Very right? much so. Very much so. And we
1: don't have to be in the same room together and spend money at a hotel and an airplane and all that craziness. So our learning is accelerated because of the power of digital media. So I am pretty confident we're gonna we're gonna stay on that train for a while
0: very cool appreciate you talking about that it's just it's just kind of interesting because we're you know there's there are lots of lessons learned I gotta tell you one of the cool things that I've benefited from was that uh, prior to the pandemic I, you know when I'd go to interview guests and if uh, I hate to say this but if they were my age and above all right uh, um, they tended to go Skype how'd I, how'd I do Skype and I and Skype wasn't it didn't work as well and and uh, i had all these problems with skype and then someone one day introduced me to zoom and i said ooh this is cool and and so i started using zoom and i had explained to uh, different people how all you got to do is just click the link that's all you got to do that's there's no you don't have to have a you don't have to belong to anything or anything like so all you got to do is click that link and have a microphone to talk with me all right and uh, and and now what's cool is that now the word zoom is like xerox All right. It's like, you know, it's like like forever. Copy machines were Xerox machines. And it's like, and the company I'm sure appreciated that, but you know, you know, even though Toshiba might've been right in the corner producing copies. I mean, today, I mean, there's all kinds of different ways we can have these conversations, but zoom, by the way, not a sponsor. Um,
1: And, you know, that is such a great point, Stephen, because during the pandemic, we found ourselves gathering, doing online, doing online professional development, but not just with Americans on the East Coast time zone. We had people from Brazil and people from Romania and people from Ireland and people from Pakistan. And you know what? Those teachers who formed relationships with others from other societies and cultures, they're continuing to collaborate where their students so there's a really cool, uh, there, the, the, the high school students in Egypt are interacting with the high school students in like rural Michigan, right? And it's like, okay, because Zoom makes that easy. And so what is that going to be like when middle school kids and high school kids realize that they can learn from anybody, any place around the world because of this technology that puts us in a, in a relationship? I'm just so excited about the future of digital learning.
0: Yeah, and that, I got to tell you, I've had I've had interviews and conversations and developed connections with people all all around the world too, and it's it's the neatest thing. I mean, you know, you want to be challenged, or at least to challenge me, just have me try and figure out how I need to talk with the author who's in Australia who's actually a little bit ahead of me in time. So they're actually in the future. And I forget about that with my calendar, you know, it's like, or, uh, you know, my favorite one is trying to connect someone from Australia and Finland, all right? So, Mm
1: -hmm. you know,
0: with me in the U.S. And it's like- Yeah,
1: there are some limits due to the, uh, (laughs) if you're on the complete other side of the world, then asynchronous is best. Have you ever used, um, oh, I Volley? Volley is an asynchronous Zoom. So I post a message on video and you pick it up, you watch it at a different time zone and react to me. And we have a convert, It's a slow conversation, Stephen, because it happens over time, but it can be just as intimate and powerful as any form of expression I've ever, ever used. And I feel like, so for my friends in Finland and my friends in Australia and my friends in Singapore we have other technologies we can use for slow conversation when we can't be in the same time zone.
0: That's awesome. You just you just started making me think about. Uh, I recently saw this movie, uh, Interstellar, and they're having this communication back on Earth that's coming out that's you know really far in the past. <laughs> you know, that's sorry, not a commercial <laughs> for Interstellar. Just, no, no, <laughs> right. just exactly.
1: But you know, time. People, humans have been communicating across time and space. Since well, since we made the uh, the the hieroglyphics, right? So, how exciting it is for students to continue to do that with their mobile devices, right? With their laptops. So, it's a it's a great time to be uh, great time to be a teacher and great time to be a learner.
0: It really is. I wish. I, oh, it would have been so cool if I had the podcast equipment like I do now. In when I was a history teacher.
1: Dude. Have you ever <laughs> been jealous? Have you ever been jealous of? The kids who are coming up now who have, who can be podcasters in high school. Oh, yeah.
0: Oh, my gosh. If I just, I mean, because it's so affordable and I can do this and, you know, and oh, my gosh, it would have been awesome to have had that ability then. And uh, just take that. If I could go back in time and take something with me and change the way I teach, that would be it. I mean, it's like, this is nice. And, uh, you know, very cool. Oh, yeah. Very jealous about that. And uh, just as a side note, if I could get rid of all the commercials on it, (laughs) YouTube. All right. You know. But because <laughs> I always go, I need something fixed. Go to YouTube. You know, it's like. <laughs>
1: well, thanks for bringing it back to persuasion. You know, it's it, part of propaganda education is understanding that uh, YouTube comes to us for free, but it isn't really free. You are paying <laughs> with your attention, right? It, that's what that's the currency of a digital era.
0: Just as a side note, I have to go back to. Do you remember it was called uh TV one or one channel, channel one, channel, you know, and uh, and and people were worried because it came with posters that were static posters you put up or the commercials that they put on there. This show is brought to you by M and M's, you know, they <laughs> melt in your hand, melt in your mouth, not in your hand. There we go, you know. It's a, uh, by the way, not a sponsor of this one either. So, you know, I, I gotta I gotta say this because uh, you want to real quick tell everybody about uh, your media um, your media lab.
1: Sure. Yeah. So uh, Media Education Lab is an online community. And um, what that means is that we gather together people who are interested in the intersections of digital and media literacy, um, including K-12 teachers and school leaders and librarians, school, public and academic librarians, Uh, college and university faculty, community college faculty, activists and producers and podcasters and people who specialize in infographics. And every week we have um, a gathering and it's only one hour long and it's at different times, sometimes in the afternoon, sometimes in the evening, depending we want to, we are aware that People's schedules are different, but we come together for co-learning. And usually uh, someone will present some ideas in about 15 or 20 minutes, and then we use the power of Zoom, that small group breakout room. We break into small groups. We have meaningful discussions. We come back and synthesize. It turns out that, and we've known this since forever, Stephen, right? Why do we put kids in classrooms with 25 kids so that they can – basically learn from each other in relationships. So the Media Education Lab, yes, we publish research. And yes, we create curriculum. And you'll find all kinds of curriculum materials and resources that we've created over now uh, 10 years. Um, but what we are now is a learning community. And this um, this week, we launch a new initiative called Media Logs on Propaganda. Uh, With support from the US State Department, we are gathering German educators, uh, K-12 educators, and teacher educators, and American uh, educators, and teacher educators, and for the whole year, we'll be meeting twice a month in a community to think about how we're teaching and learning, how we're preparing kids for living in a propaganda-saturated society. So um, if you come, You're going to make a new friend. I'll tell you that. And um, you're also going to end up teaching somebody else because that's what happens, right? When people get, when teachers get together for conversations, they, they share ideas that others can use. And, and that spirit of generosity is really at the heart of the media education lab. So you can learn more at www.mediaeducationlab.com.
0: Very cool. And and since you've gone that direction, do you have other places that you'd like to send people if they'd like to find out more?
1: That's the spot. Yes, and of course, if you want to see the great ancillary materials for the Mind Over Media book, they are amazing. Uh, that is mindovermedia. What is it? Mindovermedia. Uh, us. Now mindovermedia.us. We've got all kinds of digital learning resources there. There's a gallery of over 3,500 examples of contemporary propaganda. Anybody from anywhere in the world can upload something that they think is propaganda. And you're going to see anti-vax propaganda there. You're going to see climate change propaganda up there. If you type in um, global warming, you're going to see the good, the bad, and the ugly. All kinds of examples are up there: political propaganda, uh, propaganda about history, propaganda uh, on all kinds of topics, and um, and then there's also some digital learning modules, and then there's a traditional curriculum. Nine lessons teach this every Friday for high school students. For high school teachers teach a lesson every Friday for nine Fridays, and boom, you ha- you have a unit on propaganda. Um, so. Uh, mindovermedia.us has all kinds of great learning resources, videos, other, other cool stuff, assignments, activities, awesome. play and learning are combined.
0: So nice. So nice. And I'll, I'll make sure I have all those links in my show notes. So people will easily be able to find them and uh, come check you guys out. So uh, great stuff. And I got to ask you one more question, Renee, before you go. And it goes like this. Do you have a teacher in your past who made a difference in your life? And if so, who was it? And what would you say if given the chance to say, thank you?
1: Oh, man. Wow. Steven, I can't tell you how grateful I am that you asked me that question. Because, of course, and you you might have even guessed it. right? I am the daughter of an English teacher. <laughs> Rosemary Shulkuski was my eighth grade English teacher. Uh, she never gave me an A because she was my mom right? She had very high expectations for me. Look look how that turned out. Um, But my mom really beautifully combined play and learning. My mom used music in the classroom and singing and dancing. And my mom uh, read literature out loud to children better than anyone on the planet. She loved language. She was, her passion for learning and for literature were in infectious so i think i learned that um, teachers inspire and i'm really grateful to have had a mom as talented a teacher as rosemary shilkusky was
0: that is awesome thank you so much and even though you picked on english teachers a little bit ago i did.
1: <laughs> thank you i for love them i love them the most of all
0: that is awesome so, so cool. Well, Renee, thanks so much for talking with me today. Your book, Mind Over Media, Propaganda Education for a Digital Age, is a powerful tool that is much needed. Also, don't forget to check out those quick reference guides. Good stuff for learning how to work in this digital age. All uh, should read your book and uh, wishing the best in all you do.
1: Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me, Stephen. What a great, what a pleasurable way to spend an afternoon. I really enjoyed talking to you. See you later. Bye-bye.
0: Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of VoiceEd Radio. Voice Ed Radio.